0: Ephesians chapter 6. As you guys are turning there, have you ever noticed, have you guys noticed lately that we as Christians are at war? You guys realize we're at war? Because we live in a world that is controlled by one who hates us because we bear the name of Christ. He hates everyone really, but especially us. Uh, we're at war with him, he, of course, with us. And God has seen fit to give us a means by which we can do battle against him. And so we're, we're going to be taking a look in Ephesians chapter 6 at the armor of God, but we in particular are going to zero in on one piece of that armor. That is going to be the shield of faith tonight in verse 16. But as I've asked you to open up your Bibles to uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, would you stand with me? I I like to uh, have everyone stand in honor of God's word. Stand with me as we're going to read God's word. verses. Actually, I'm, I'm going to take an entire passage, verses 10 through 20. Then we're going to zero in on verse 16. So if you'll follow along with me, please, as I read, and I'm reading from the New King James Version of God's Word. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the armor, God, that you have given to us to be engaged in this warfare, to do battle against the enemy and those who are with him. God, I pray that you just have your way in our hearts even now as we bow before you, as we bow before your word. Might your spirit be the one who teaches us, who gives us understanding of these things. And and Lord, the discernment and wisdom to know how to apply these truths to our lives. So God, we give this to you. We give our hearts to you and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. The armor of God. Very essential for us in this warfare that we are engaged in. I, I don't know about you guys, but you know, when when I gave my heart to Christ, I did not realize that I was signing up for war. Did you guys realize that? Anybody realize that when you actually signed up? So, uh, one, one brother says he did. He's been in battle a long time. And we all have, whoever... Whenever we gave our hearts to Christ, that's when the battle really started. Even though the enemy hated you before you came to Christ, he began to hate you more after you came to him. Uh, Before you came to Christ, he wasn't worried about you. Uh, You were basically on his side. You didn't know it. I didn't know it. But we were. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were at enmity with god and we were enemies of god's at that time so many things we don't learn about where we were what we were doing the place that we had in terms of spiritual things until after we got into god's word and started reading and and i remember the first time that i read about uh, being at enmity with god before i came to christ I, I, I wasn't mad at god i wasn't his enemy was i but that's what the word says and Indeed, I was in that place. But now that we've come to Christ, now that we belong to Him, we are actually engaged in the battle. We're engaged in the warfare. And we see here that in verse 12 that those who we wrestle against, it's not flesh and blood, it's not people. On a spiritual level, it is not the people that we are engaged against, although we know that the enemy uses people. It is really against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness, even in heavenly places. It's a it's the, it's the demonic world. In the spiritual realm, we are at battle against Satan and his demons. That's the reality. But we need an, we, we need armor so that we can stand against him. And notice in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God, all of the armor. We, we, we see six different pieces of armor listed here in verses 14 through 17. Six different pieces. All of them defensive. One of them we use offensively, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But we're to take up the whole armor of God. And then we see this in verse 13 that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And then verse 14 verse stand, uh, begins this way stand therefore. Do you get the idea that God wants you to stand in this warfare? That we may withstand having done all to stand, stand therefore. Having girded your waist or girded your loins with truth. So the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. uh, Wearing the gospel of of peace over our feet. Taking the shield of faith as well as a helmet of salvation. And the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. This is the armor that God has given to us. Before we begin looking at the shield of faith, we we see that already Paul, as he writes to the Ephesian church, as he writes to us as well, he didn't know it at the time, but he was, it was intended by God, as he inspired him to write, that this would be for us as well. But Paul writes that as we take up that whole armor of God, that we will put on this belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and have this preparation of the gospel of peace, wearing that as our shoes. Three basic pieces of, of, of armor that the soldier is to wear at all times. We get to the shield of faith. The shield the soldier is not needing until the battle actually begins, until the attack comes, until the those flaming... Uh, arrows start coming, the spears start coming at them, and then the, the, the shield needs to be used at that particular point in time. But it is called the shield of faith. We see here that Paul says, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, when he says above all, he's not saying that this is the most important piece. He's not saying that. He's saying that the shield is going to go above all. He's already spoken about three different pieces of armor. The the, the shoes, the breastplate, and the belt. The shield goes up here above everything else. It not only protects our body, it protects those other pieces of armor as well. And there are two different kinds of shields that that would be used, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But because this is a shield of faith, I want to talk a little bit about that first. First of all, defining faith. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Maybe a few of you began thinking, even I said, let's define faith thinking I'll bet he goes to chapter 11 in Hebrews. You were right, if that's what you were thinking. We, we find here in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, which is known as the Hall of Faith. Not the Hall of Fame, but the Hall of Faith, a chapter on faith. And we see the definition of faith given to us in the very first verse. Which says this. Now faith is a substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. The idea of substance really speaks of confidence. The idea of that being hoped for. Something future. It speaks of an expectation. A confident expectation. Evidence basically is proof. So faith is this idea of Confidence, a, a a confidence in things hoped for, confidently expected. Confidence that this is actually going to take place and th- that it may turn out to our evidence or proof that this is actually faith that comes from God. The New Living Translation tra- uh, translates it this way. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. The Amplified Version, a little bit more wordy, says it this way. Now, faith is the assurance, the confirmation or the title deed, of the things we hope for. Being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality. Faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. Things we can't see, things we can't hear, things we can't touch, but things that are very real. In fact, in, in, in reality, the spiritual world, even though we can't see it, is more real than the physical world. In the sense that from the perspective of philosophers, it's that which lasts longest which is more real. It is more sure. The Word of God, for example... Endures forever. The spiritual things that we're talking about are indeed very, very real. As we define what faith is, let's look down at verse 6. Which says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. It is absolutely impossible to live a life that is pleasing to God without faith. Faith basically is simply believing God. believing God for things that we don't see. believing God that things have not yet uh, for things that have not yet happened. But notice, the writer speaks of the one who comes to God and must believe that he is. That, that's faith. Believe is the verb form of the noun faith. It's, a, it's basically the same Greek word. Believing is faith in action, so to speak. If you come to God, you've got to believe that he is. And in believing that he is, that he also rewards the one who diligently seeks him. I find it interesting that it's worded this way by the writer to the Hebrews. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that is a rewarder of those who believe in him. No, not who believe in him. Who seek him. He's a rewarder of the one who seeks him. Now, if you are seeking something, let me ask you a question here. If you are seeking something, um, I, I have a habit of losing my glasses. Or maybe I should just say misplacing my glasses. You know, I mean, I've, I've had times where, you know, they'll be like this. Honey, where's my glasses? You know, I mean, they're on top of my head. I might set them someplace. I have, I have destroyed glasses by stepping on them. Maybe working out in the yard and a close-up thing going on. I take my glasses off and I forget I set them there. Then I get up and step right on them. I've, I've done that before. But you know, losing your glasses or losing your keys. Anybody ever here ever misplace your keys? Well, then you put on the search. Where, where are the keys? And you start going through the house. Now, as you are seeking after your keys, tell me something. When does the reward come? For the seeking after. When does the reward come? Somebody say it. Yeah, when you find them. When you find them. Now, God says this, that he himself is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. When you're looking for your keys, you're rewarded when, you're find, when you find them. When you are seeking after God, you are rewarded when you find Him. And He is the one who reward he's the one that brings the reward. If you diligently seek Him, you will find Him. He will indeed reward you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Wonderful, wonderful promise. Well, getting back to this idea of faith. Uh, Stay here in in Hebrews 11 for a moment. But this idea of faith that Paul uh, uh, presents in in Ephesians 6 as a part of this armor of God, the shield of faith. uh, This faith that he's talking about is not the body of Christian beliefs. Sometimes we'll talk about, you know, keeping the faith. The faith can identify doctrine. All that we believe because of the truths contained in the word of God. That's not really what it's talking about. It's talking about basically trusting in God. The faith that Christ um, appropriates salvation and continues to bring blessing and strength as this faith trusts Him for daily provision and help. The basic substance of Christianity is Believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews 11.6 that we just read. It it also consists of putting total trust in Jesus Christ as the crucified, buried, risen and ascended Savior who now makes intercession for us. And also obeying the scriptures, understanding that the scriptures are his infallible and and authoritative Word. This is basic Christianity. We might add to that another basic in our Christian faith is looking forward to the Lord's soon return. This is Christianity. This is living by faith in a very real way. Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophet, made a declaration that the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2, verse It's quoted twice by the Apostle Paul in Romans and in Galatians, reaffirmed by him, and then it is also affirmed by the writer to the Hebrews back in the previous chapter, in chapter 10, verse 38, just before he speaks of faith here in the 11th chapter. A real example of faith, this is why I wanted you to remain in chapter 11 of Hebrews, I, I want to Turn your attention to one statement that's made about Abraham. If you if you look here in my Bible, I've got you know uh, little headings of various paragraphs. You guys have that in in your Bible. Uh, I've got that. Before verse eight, I see the word the the names Abraham and Sarah, and then all that goes all the way through the nineteenth verse until we get to Isaac in verse twenty. Well, I want to look at the latter portion of that section and look at verses 17 through 19. Let's look and see what Abraham did by faith. These words read this way. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Hmm, interesting the way that's worded of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now you guys are familiar with this story that the writer is referring to. Abraham being called by God to take his son Isaac, up to Mount Moriah and to offer him up as a sacrifice. Now, God tells us that he never intended that anyone should ever be sacrificed, any human being ever offered in sacrifice to him. Never was the thought. But this was a test, right? This was a test. He wanted to see how Abraham would respond. He really, I mean, he knew how Abraham was going to respond because he knows all things, right? A test is so that we can find out how we respond, (laughs) where we are in our relationship with him. Well, Abraham took him. He was being tested. He offered him up, as we see there in verse 17. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. And note how he's described. He who had received the promises. This is a description of Abraham. He received the promises. Isaac was that promise. Because he was promised that through Isaac, his seed would be called. This is speaking of the seed of the Messiah. As well as the many uh, who would come through Isaac himself. That this nation that would come through him would be as numerable as the sands on the seashore or the stars in the sky. It had to take place through Isaac. That's what he was promised. And yet, God told him to offer up Isaac. To take him, offer him up as a human sacrifice. And we're told in verse 19, he concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. He figured this, well, God has made me a promise That through this son of promise, Isaac, the the nation that comes after me would be as numerable as the sands on the seashore, as I mentioned. That's a promise. And included in that would be the Messiah himself. That the seed would be called through Isaac. That's a truth that God has given to me. Now God is telling me to offer Isaac up. Now... I do not know how God is going to bring a multitude of people as, as, as many as the sands on the, the, the sand on the seashore through a man who's dead. But I know He's going to bring it through Isaac. And I know that He told Him to offer Him up. God must be planning to, after I offer him up, raise him from the dead so that he can keep his original promise. That's what he's thinking. Now, I don't know about you, I don't think I would be thinking that. I don't think I would. I don't think my faith is as strong as Abraham's was. He's the father of faith, you know. I probably would have... Reasoned it through a bit, thinking that God really is not telling me to do what I think I heard him say to do. I must be misinterpreting what he's saying. Certainly, he can't be saying what I thought he said, because Isaac is the promise. But he did indeed say that, and he just simply believed that, you know, if this is true, he's just going to raise him up. So he went and he prepared to do it. And and you guys know the story. As Abraham had his son. By the way. Abraham is old by this time. Abraham is probably somewhere around 115 years old. Or something like this. This son Isaac. Probably 14, 15 years of age himself. And Isaac willingly. Allowed his father to lay him on that altar. And as Abraham took the knife back, getting ready to thrust into his only begotten son. God stopped him. God stopped him then. Now I know. Now I know that you love me. I know that you believe. What what an incredible, incredible test. What an incredible test that is. Faith. The shield of faith, which above all the other um, pieces of armor protects us in our warfare. Now, back over to Ephesians chapter 6. As we're turning there, a few thoughts in regard to this idea of faith and and the um, place that it would have in regard to the Roman soldier in terms of the shield that is represented by faith roman soldiers would use several kinds of shields but two were the most common one was a rather small you know maybe a 2 foot round kind of a shield uh, probably something similar to what captain america uses wouldn't be as magical as his but that size and that shape it would have a, it would have some uh, leather straps on it so that the sh- soldier could strap the the shield onto his his arm, and protect himself as he's in hand-to-hand combat. The sword would be wielded and, and would be used also to protect himself, but that smaller shield, about two feet around, would be used in that way. The second kind of a shield was a larger one, maybe two and a half feet wide by five feet tall or so. These are the shields that we're familiar with in watching movies from that time, whenever the the uh, military line would advance. These larger shields would be placed side by side. Maybe about as wide as, as, as this pulpit right here. Taller. The shield bearer would have it. And they would have them before them. And there would be one right next to them. Another next to him, Another next to them. So that it's just a solid line. Solid protection. And that could be for a mile or two. That many shields. Moving forward. And the th- those uh, the, the archers would be behind them just shooting their arrows, being protected by this, these shields. That was the, that's the shield that is being talked about in this passage. The overall one, that, the, the, the larger one, that brings the greater protection. Faith. Every person lives by some form of faith. In fact, you guys have exercised faith in countless ways Today. Right now, you are exercising faith in the chairs that you're sitting in. When you walked into this, the, the, this building, when you walked into this room, you plopped yourself down on that chair believing that it was going to hold you up. And lo, be, lo and behold, look at them, they're holding you up. You place faith in the chairs. When, when you got into your car, you, you had faith that whenever you would turn on the ignition, however you might turn it on, whether it's with a key turning it or pushing a button or whatever, that when you did that, the engine would start. And that faith came to pass in the sense that it was fulfilled because the car started. How do I know that? Here you are. Here you are. When whoever opened up this building this morning, walked in and and wanted to light the building, that person exercised faith by flipping a light switch, believing that doing, performing that act was going to bring light into this room because of all the electrical connections and the light that's attached and all of that, just by flipping a switch. We exercise faith constantly. Constantly. Well, in doing that, we've got to understand and realize That faith is only as reliable and only as helpful as the trustworthiness of that thing or that person in which or in whom we have placed our faith. Only as reliable as the object of that faith. And faith in a Christian. Christian faith is powerful. Christian faith is effective because... Jesus Christ himself is infinitely powerful and absolutely reliable and dependable and trustworthy in all things. Amen. When we trust in him, he will not fail. We we talk about the faithfulness of God. Everything he says he will do, he does. Why? He's faithful. He cannot lie. He makes a promise. He's going to keep it. He told you you would live if you give your heart to Christ. You will live because you gave your heart to Christ. You will live for, through eternity. You've received the free gift of eternal life because you did what the Bible said to do in order to obtain that gift of eternal life by simply believing in Jesus. Believing that indeed he did Come into this world as the son of God. God manifest in the flesh. And he lived those 33 years. Sinlessly. And then he took your sin and mine upon himself. And was nailed to that tree. Being the lamb of God taking our sin upon Himself that our sin might be removed from us as we place our trust in Him, as we believe that He he indeed did what He said He would do. And then He was buried and on the third day He rose again to prove that what He said is accurate, to prove that yes, indeed He is God. And 40 days yet later He rose, ascended into heaven, where He now is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and for me. Did you think today about the reality that Jesus is praying for you before I mentioned it just now? Jesus prays for you constantly, constantly. Faith in Christ never fails because the one in whom we have placed our faith never fails. He is always, always Faithful. There was a uh, Christian missionary at a South Seas island ministering to a tribe there, and, and one of his goals was to translate the Bible for them. And as he was attempting to do this, he discovered that the word trust or the word faith didn't have Uh, A word in that language among these people. One day, a native of that, of those islands had been running hard, came into the missionary's house. He was, he was breathing heavily. He just came in, found a chair, plopped himself into the chair, and he said, Oh, it's so good to rest my whole weight on this chair. And then it hit him. That's the word I'll use. I'll translate faith as resting one's whole weight on God. Resting your whole weight on God. Sometimes we place faith in things that fail us. In relationships with people. People that we thought would... Honor something that we said to them or keep something uh, uh, in confidence that we had mentioned. And then we find out that other people have heard about it. No, what only you told this one person, you realize that this person was not faithful to you. Sometimes you flip a switch and it doesn't work. Because it just simply doesn't always work. Switches break. Electrical lines fail, bulbs burn out. Sometimes you put the key in your car and it doesn't start. Because engines sometimes fail. Maybe it's the ignition system itself It failed. Jesus never does. I do remember one occasion, this is years and years ago, I'm thinking in in our family. Um, we were sitting around the dinner table one time. This has got to be 35 years ago or so. Uh, our kids were, um, if it was 35 years ago, then our kids were probably something like 12 and 10 and 5, or 12, 10 and 8, 11, 9 and 7, something like that. But we are at the dinner table. And, and, you know, back in that in, in those days, if this was 35 years ago, that means it was probably 1983. That sounds about right. Right, right around there. At that time, I don't know if you guys who, who were around at that time, you, you will probably remember that there were um, gas stations who had closed down and they were opened up as, as little furniture stores. And and they would have, you know, these dinette sets and they would have couches out there. You remember the Herculon couches and sofas and stuff like that? They they would have who remembers that? Am I the only old one in here? Okay. A few of you do remember that. Okay, thank you. I'm not crazy. And, and guys look around. Their hands are up. I'm not, I'm not crazy. Yes, gas stations turned into little furniture marts. And the furniture was kind of cheap. But it fit our budget. And we, we bought one of those dinette sets. And we'd had it a few years, I guess. And uh, we were sitting at the dinner table. And as we're eating, we're talking. We're having a nice time eating and stuff. And I remember that my wife, Jeanette, she was sitting across from me. And one of the kids was next to me. One of the kids next to her, and another one at the end of the table. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at my wife, and I see her start doing this. She 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 just goes. "Mm." She fell right off of the chair because the leg of the chair crumbled. It just it just gave out, and she just in slow motion she went. "Mm." And we're going. You know, one of those things like, you're kind of concerned that she might be hurt, but it's a lot more funny than concerning. You know, and we we laughed and we we have not let her, we've not not, uh, let that one go yet. But um, sometimes even a chair will fail, right? Well, in placing our faith in Jesus, it never will fail. Now, here in Ephesians 6, we see that, the way that Paul writes it, he says that this shield of faith is going to protect us from the fiery darts of the wicked one. To quench, to stop the fiery darts of the wicked one. I think it could be said that most of those fiery darts come in the, in the uh, form of temptation temptation that comes to us temptation that is designed by the enemy to cause us to fail to cause us to make a wrong choice and commit sin of one kind or another in james chapter 1 verses 12 to 14 it says that blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to those who love him Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Temptation occurs when our own desire draws us away and entices us. You know, something might be placed before us, some temptation, something that is there. And it would not be a problem except for the desire that is in my heart for that thing. So the thing itself is not a temptation. It is the desire in my heart that brings a temptation. Because I have desire for that thing that God does not want me involved with. Turn with me to the book of Job. Job in the Old Testament. Job is right before the Psalms. And I want to look at the first chapter, the first and second chapter. We're going to look at a couple verses. In Job chapter 1, verse 11, and then Job chapter 2, verse 5, we see essentially the same things being said. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Job, you recall that God had called Satan before him. Satan was up there, uh, at some kind of a, um, angelic meeting. Satan himself being an angel, a fallen one indeed, but an angel nonetheless. And he was there, and, and God, as he, is there with the Lord, the, the Lord said, hey, have you noticed, Job, my servant, and I mean how wonderful he is? What a great servant, how how righteous he is, how faithful he is to me. And Satan says, of course he is. Look at all the things you've done for him. Look at all that he has. I mean, he's one of the richest man, r- richest men in the world. He's got all this stuff. Of course, Of course, he's faithful to you. Look what you've given him. You let me have him. And look at verse 11 of chapter 1. He says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. Curse you to your face. Now turn over to the second chapter, or go to the second chapter, the fifth verse. Look at this. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. You see, this is what the enemy wanted to bring Job to, to this place. Where he would curse God to his face. That was Satan's objective. To get him to curse God to his face. And we know the story. God had taken everything from Job. All of his possessions. Even his ten children. Took them from him. Job would not sin. In fact. Job's wife. Tried to get him to. She said to him in verse 9 of that second chapter, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And she even dangled this carrot in front of him to get him to curse God. I think that's probably why the enemy wouldn't touch her, because he knew that he could use her in his life. But verse 10, we see, the, we see um, Job responding this way. You speak as one of the foolish women speak, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. But we find ourselves under temptation, in temptation, often in our walk in this world. And. Our enemy desires that we begin to doubt God, that we doubt his word, that, that, we, that we doubt the things that he has said, that, he, that we doubt his truth, that we doubt his faithfulness, that we doubt his goodness toward us. All those things, he wants us to come to a place of doubt. Satan even tempted Jesus when he was in the wilderness. But, but Jesus always responded with God's word. Guys, it is God's word that is going to protect us in times of temptation. It is God's truth that is going to hold us in line to keep us in that place that we will not fall to the enemy. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. David writes in Psalm 1830, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. In Genesis 15, 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So even Abraham himself, he had heard these things from God, and he knew that God was with him. First John chapter five, verse four tells us this is the victory that has overcome your overcome the world, our faith. Now why is that true? Why is faith that which overcomes the world? This, why is that our victory? Well, because our place is faith, our faith is placed in the one who said, I have overcome the world. Jesus Himself. John sixteen, verse thirty-three. You guys might remember that. The, the disciples of Jesus at one time, asked that he increase their faith. How is it that faith can be increased? Well, Romans 10:17 says, "So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God." The context of Romans 10 is, is a, a faith unto salvation, but any kind of biblical faith is uh, subject to that particular principle. It is increased. Through the word of God. Warren Wiersbe said. That true Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word. In spite of circumstances and consequences. Now. As we. And that's one of our problems isn't it? The Lord gives us direction. And we have a lack of confidence. In what's going to happen as a result of us doing that very thing. You may be witnessing to somebody, sharing sharing your faith with, with, with a loved one or with a neighbor, a, a, a co-worker, a classmate, whomever. And there's always the same response. And, and then the Lord directs you to do it again. And our thinking is this, Lord, you know it's not going to work. It, it hasn't worked. It's always the same kind of response. We, we, we get in an argument. They feel like I'm, I'm, I'm dogging on them and it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It's not good for our relationship. I don't want to do that. It's not going to work. We, we reason things through too much. Instead of just simply listening to what God has to say and doing what He says. We, we seem to forget That nothing is impossible for him. We seem to forget that God's word never returns void. God sends it and he always accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. Always. Without fail. You guys believe that? Amen. It it happens without fail. In regard to this faith. Turn with me over to Hebrews 11 once again. I want to show you something there. We've already looked at a couple of those verses, verse 1 and 6. I want to take a look later on in the verse. We looked at verse uh, 17 to 19 as well. But later on, even further on in the chapter than that, something that is very, very powerful. And when we... Hear what uh, Wiersbe said. Again, I, I want to repeat what Weersby said. He said that true Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. I, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful definition. In spite of how we think it might turn out. And even if the consequences are going to be bad. You know, we're living in a time where the word of God is, is not popular in our culture. Not popular. Truth is not popular. In fact, our, our culture has moved to a place where there really is no such thing as absolute truth. That's what they believe. Now, I, I think in a conversation, a reasonable conversation, you can get somebody who says there's no such thing as absolute truth to say that there are some things that are You can get them to say that. But the point that I'm making is this. The idea of God's word in our culture is being fought against more and more and more and more. People like myself, Pastor Xavier, other pastors standing behind a pulpit like this. In some countries, in Canada it has happened. Speaking God's truth in regard to what he has to say about the sin of homosexuality, for example, it is regarded as hate speech. A pastor was removed from the pulpit and placed in jail for a period of time in Canada. And we're moving in that direction here in our own country, in our own state. There are bills before the, the, our, our state legislature that are definitely moving in that direction. We've got to be, we, we've got to be watchful of those things. Yet, God's word is God's word, isn't it? I, I would pray that if, if sometime if some I'm removed from my pulpit, pulpit for speaking God's truth, that the men in our church will just line up to take that spot and speak the same things. And allow the j- jails to be overflooded with men who refuse to compromise the truth of God's word. I pray that that will happen. But look at this, though. Look at this in verses beginning in verse 35. We already had seen the writer of the Hebrews writing about, you know, Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, his parents, Joshua and Rahab, others. Then in verse 35, follow along as I read. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Get that? A better resurrection. Die a martyr's death, you've got a better resurrection. Right? Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Stop right there. These saints, who were tormented and tortured and and and, and they were persecuted in a number of various ways by the world, by people around them, we see that the Holy Spirit sees fit to describe them as people of whom the world was not worthy. Those who were persecuting them were not even worthy themselves to be in the presence of the ones they were persecuting because of the reality of their faith in God. For you and for me, guys. Because we have the presence of Christ within us. And we know that we are not worthy to receive the gift of his presence within us. We know that, don't we? We understand that. We are sinners saved by the grace of God. But he has chosen to live inside of me and to live inside of you. I mean, it's just an incredible wonder that we will never really fully understand. But it is true. He lives in you. He lives in me. The presence of Christ. It is his presence. In which. or before, before whom no one is worthy to stand. We've received forgiveness of our sins. We have received the righteous robe of God. Through which as we wear that righteousness. We're able to stand before him. Others around us are not. They are not, and of course they're not, worthy of our Christ who lives in us. We're not either. But might we live according to His worthiness, though? As we follow after Him, might we become more and more like Him? Might that sanctification process that is taking place with every one of us become more and more and more real until we take our final breath before we go to be in His presence in heaven? Living like him more and more. Speaking like him more and more. Loving like him more and more and more. Remembering that Jesus said, A a commandment I give to you. A commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, love one another. All will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. As he gave this commandment that we would love even as he has loved us. He said people are going to recognize that we belong to him when we love that way. Not when we have the Bible memorized. I'm not saying it's, not, it's a good thing to memorize scripture. We need to do that. But, but anybody can memorize scripture. It is the disciple of Jesus that loves unconditionally and sacrificially. In John thirteen one, we are told that Jesus loved his disciples to the very end, to the uttermost, the very end. What does that mean? He never stopped. He never stopped. We in our relationship with others around us, sometimes we are we are tested, we are tried, we are tempted, and and we and we get tired. Of being the one who gives in. We get tired of the one who forgives. We get tired of the one who does the loving. When can we stop? Haven't I done it enough? Well, if we're going to be like Jesus, we haven't. Because we haven't loved to the very end yet. See, that's what God calls us to. And in that kind of love, in that kind of love, we find others around us will say, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. They may not say that. But, but if they were honest, that's the truth. One thing I know, the Holy Spirit said it of those Old Testament saints. And the Holy Spirit will give that testament, that, that testimony of you and of me as we live our lives that way. Loving as Christ has loved us. Might we live our lives in complete trust in the one who's loved us and gave himself for us that we might be made worthy in his sight father help us we pray fill us with your spirit enable us by his power and his might by his goodness by his love to be more and more like you lord jesus and have your way with every heart in this place let your spirit come upon us in a very real way tonight even convicting us of the way that we have failed to love others Lord, you you know our hearts. You know our deeds. You know the words that we've spoken. Lord, there are those in this room even now, Lord, who have a need to fall before you, to seek your forgiveness and repent, and seek your filling that tomorrow we'll be able to do it better. Every one of us in a real sense. But there are some particular things that have taken place. And as we are praying even now, our eyes closed and our heads bowed. Is there anyone here tonight who specifically have done something unloving towards someone and the Lord has spoken to you about it? You want to correct that? You want to give yourself over to that? I'd love to pray for you right now. Anyone? Eyes closed, heads bowed. Anyone? God bless you. I see your hand raised. Anyone else? anyone else Lord bless you Lord bless you God bless you Lord speak into your heart right now he's just simply saying just surrender give it up give it to me give yourself to me anyone else God bless you God bless you Father you've seen these hands that have been raised you know the things that are going on you know the situations you know each heart and thank you for the softness of heart that has received these things tonight we pray for your for the outpouring of your spirit upon each one fill them with your love fill them with compassion and lord as they repent and they seek you lord give them the means by which amends can be made the means by which a healing of relationship can begin And God, I pray that you just have your way. For every one of us, Lord, we cry out to you, Lord. Just make us like you, Lord Jesus. Make us like you. Fill us and use us to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.